Chapter One of Thirty Two Caliber by Donald McGibney. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Read for you today by Don Larson in Minnesota. Thirty Two Caliber by Donald McGibney. Chapter One. Bring Jim here. I was in the locker room of the country club getting dressed after the best afternoon of golf I had ever had. I had just beaten Paisley one up in eighteen holes of the hardest kind of sledding. If you knew Paisley, you'd understand just why I was so glad to beat him. He is a most insufferable conceited ass about his golf, for a man who plays as badly as he does, in addition to which he usually beats me. It's not that Paisley plays a better game, but he has a way of making me pull my drive or over-approach just by his confounding manner of looking at me when I'm getting ready to play. We usually trot along about even until we come to the seventh hole. In fact, I'm usually ahead at the seventh, and then conversation does me in. You see, the seventh hole can be played two ways. There's a small clay bank that abuts the green, and you can either play around it or over it to the hole, which lies directly behind. The real golfers play over with a good mashy shot that lands them dead on the green, but dubs, like Paisley, play around with two easy mid-iron shots. When we get to the place where the choice must be made, Paisley suggests that I go around, which makes me grip my mashy firmly, recall all the things I have read in the little book about how to play a mashy shot, and let drive with all my force, which usually lands me somewhere near the top of the clay bank, where it would take a mountain goat to play the next shot. After that, Paisley and I exchange a few hectic observations, and my temperature and score mount to the highest known altitude. Of course, every now and then, I forget my stance in Paisley long enough to send a ball in a beautiful parabola right onto the green. And when I do, oh, brother, the things I say to Paisley put him in such a frame of mind that I could play the rest of the course with a paddle and basketball and still beat him. This particular afternoon he had tried to play the seventh hole as it should be played, and, though we had both foozled, I had won the hole and romped triumphantly home with the side of pig. I was gaily humming to myself as I put on my clothes when James Felderson came in. His face was drawn and his mouth was set in a way that was utterly foreign to Jim, whose smile had done more to keep peace in committee meetings and to placate irate members than all other harmonizing agencies in the club put together. There was something unnatural, too, about his eyes as though he had been drinking. "'Have you seen Helen?' he demanded in a thick voice. "'No, not today. I answered. "'What's the matter, Jim? Anything wrong?' Felderson had been my law partner ever since he married my sister, Helen. I had left him at the office just before lunch, and he had seemed then as cheerful and unperturbed as usual. "'Helen has gone off with Frank Woods,' he burst out, his voice breaking as he spoke. It took a second for me to grasp the meaning of what he said. Then I grabbed him by the shoulder. Jim, Jim, what are you saying? My sister left her husband, ran off with another man? 
I had read of such things in stories, but never had I believed that real people in real life and of real social position ever so disgraced themselves. Everyone knew that Frank Woods had been seeing a lot of Helen, and several close friends had asked me if Jim knew the man's reputation. I had even spoken to Helen only to be laughed at, and assured that it was just idle gossip of scandal-mongers. That she should have left Jim, darling old Jim, for Frank Woods, or any other man, was unthinkable. Jim sank on the bench and turned a face to me that had grown utterly haggard. It's true, Bupps. I found this on the table when I went home to lunch. He held out a crumpled note written in Helen's rather mannish backhand. Jim, it is now ten-thirty. Frank is coming for me at eleven. He has made me realize that loving him the way I do, I would be doing you a horrible injustice to keep up the wretched pretense of being your wife. Had you left any other way open, I would have taken it, but you refused a divorce. I hate to hurt you the way I must, but try to understand. And forgive me, Helen. I turned toward Jim. His chin was sunk in his hands. Two men came in from the tennis courts and nodded as they went by. "'What have you done?' I asked. He raised his head, and on his face was written incalculable misery. "'Nothing,' he answered, dropping his hands hopelessly. "'What can I do except let them go and get a divorce as soon as possible? "'It's my fault.' After we quarreled the other night, she asked me to give her a divorce, and I refused. God, Bupps, if you only knew how much I love her and how hard I've tried to make her love me. And she did love me till Woods came along. I hurried up my dressing, turning over in my mind the details of Jim's married life. In the light of the latest developments, I realized the painful fact that I was partly to blame myself. Helen hadn't really loved Jim when she had married him. Oh, she loved him in the same way she'd loved lots of other men whom she'd been more or less engaged to at one time or another. She had married Jim because it had been the thing to do that year to get married. And she realized that Jim loved her more and could give her more than any of the others. Where I came in was that I had urged her to marry Jim because he was the best man in the world and because I wanted him for my brother-in-law. I remembered now how cold Helen had been even during their engagement, trumping up almost any excuse to keep from spending an evening alone with the man who was to be her husband. It made me so hot that I had reproached her even in Jim's presence. My words didn't seem to affect Helen any, but they did affect Jim a lot. He had taken me for a long ride in his car, and filled me full of moonshine about how he was unworthy of her, and how he would win her love after they were married. I was in such sympathy with him that I tried to believe it true, although I knew Helen as only a younger brother can know a sister. I knew that she had been pampered and petted ever since she was a child, that she had never shown much affection for father and mother, who were her slaves, while toward me, who had insulted her and made fun of her, she was almost effusive. With this in mind, I had urged Jim to neglect her, to treat her rough, 
But when a man is head over heels in love with a girl, what's the good of advice? To tell him to mistreat her was like telling a Mohammedan to spit in the face of the prophet. They had been married a little over a year when Frank Woods came to Eastbrook, on war business for the French government. He had been in Papa Joffrey's army during the melee, wore the Croix de Guerre with several palms, and could hold a company of people enthralled with stories of his experiences. Whether he had a right to the decorations, or even to the uniform, no one was quite sure, but it set off every good point of his massive and well-built frame. He would stand in front of the fire, and tell of air scraps in such a way that, while he never mentioned the hero by name, it was easy to guess that hero and Frank Woods were synonymous. He could dance, ride, play any game, and shoot better than the best of us. And when he sat at the piano and sang, every man looked at his wife or fiancé and wondered where the lightning was going to strike. For although he was a very proper young bachelor for months, showing no unseemly interest in women, we all of us, I think, secretly felt that he was setting the stage for a grand coup. If he had singled out Helen from the first, he couldn't have played his game better, for his seeming indifference to her loveliness piqued her almost to madness. During the early months of our entrance in the war, he was called back to France, and every man in Eastbrook breathed a sigh of relief. There wasn't one of us who could say why we thought him a cad, but just the same, I doubt if there was a father in Eastbrook who would willingly have given his daughter to him. He was too much of the ideal lover to make a good husband. There was something about him, too, that made no man want to claim him as particular friend, but perhaps it was because we were all jealous. While most of the younger men of the town were in France, or, like Jim and myself, in a training camp, Frank Woods came back, and this time there was no mistaking whom he had picked out for his attentions. Until the war was over, and Jim home, it was not noticeable, for he was most meticulous in his behavior. But with Jim busy trying to straighten out our tangled practice, Woods lost no time in taking advantage of his opportunities. And there had been opportunities enough, heaven knows, with Jim surrounded by clients, yet trying in his clumsy, lovable way to remonstrate with Helen for seeing so much of Woods. My interference had only increased his opportunities, for the evening I told her what people were saying, she quarreled with Jim, and as a result he threw himself into his work, with an energy in which enthusiasm had no part. All the time these thoughts were running through my head, and they ran much faster than I can set them down, I had been throwing my clothes on, knowing something had to be done, yet what that something was I couldn't for the life of me figure out. "'Come on, Jim,' I said, grabbing him by the arm and pulling him from his dejected position. "'Where to?' he responded wearily. First of all, we're going to shut this thing up. The sun would like nothing better than to spread it thickly all over the front page of their filthy sheet. You're right, old boy. I'd forgotten about the newspapers. It would be horrible for Helen to have her name dragged through the mud. I wasn't thinking of Helen, I responded testily, but a lot of cheap notoriety won't help our law practice any. 
All the spirit seemed to have seeped out of his system, so I pushed him into my car, preferring to take the wheel rather than having him drive. I can always think better when I have a steering wheel in my hands, and, knowing with what speed Jim drove ordinarily, I didn't care to trust my precious body to him in his overwrought condition. We were just backing into the drive when one of the servants came running from the club. "'Oh, Mr. Thompson!' he called. I stopped the car and waited for him to come up. "'What is it?' "'You're wanted on the telephone.' I jumped from the car and started for the club. There were the usual groups of tea-drinkers and bridge-players scattered about on the broad veranda, and it seemed to me, as I ran up the steps, that they all stopped talking and looked at me, I thought with curiosity, if not with pity. There would be no use shutting up the newspapers if that bunch of gossips were in possession of the scandal. I hurried to the telephone and slammed the door to the booth, expecting to hear the voice of some reporter, demand if there was any truth to the rumor that Mrs. James Felderson had run off with Frank Woods. To my buzzing brain it seemed that the whole world must have heard that news. Hello, I called. Is that you, Warren? It was Helen's voice. Helen, I yelled, for God's sakes, where are you? I am at the house. Listen, Warren, have you seen Jim? Her voice sounded faint and strangely uncontrolled. Yes, yes, I shouted. He's here with me now. Then bring him here quickly, Warren. Please hurry. But Helen, don't ask me any questions, please. There was a catch in her voice on the other end of the wire. I can't answer any questions now, but bring Jim and hurry. The receiver clicked and I dashed out of the booth, a thousand questions pounding in my brain. Why was Helen at the house? Had Frank Woods failed to keep his appointment, thinking better of eloping with another man's wife? Or had Helen come to her senses, seen through the thin veneer that covered the cad and the libertine in Frank Woods, and returned to her husband for good? Over and above these questions and conjectures and hopes, there was thanksgiving in my heart that the irremediable step had not been taken that something had intervened to keep scandal and disgrace away from Jim. There must have been something in my face that told Jim I had been talking to Helen, for he moved into the driver's seat and greeted me with the single question, Where is she? Home, I panted, and drive like the devil. I might have saved myself the trouble of the last, for even before I had got into the car, there was a roar of exhaust and the crunching of grinding gears, and we were off down the smooth drive with a speed that quickly brought tears to my eyes and put the fear of God in my heart. How we ever escaped a smash-up after we got into the city, I can't tell to this day, for Jim never once slackened speed. He sat there with his jaws set, pumping gas and still more gas into the little car. Thrice I saw death loom up ahead of us, as vehicles approached from side streets, but with a swerve and a sickening skid we missed them somehow. Once a street car and a wagon seemed completely to block the road ahead, but Jim steered for the slender opening, and when I opened my eyes we had skinned through, leaving a corpulent and cursing driver far behind. 
After that I forgot my wretched fear, and the blood surged through my veins at the delicious feel of the air as it whipped by my cheeks. We turned at last into the long approach to Jim's house, and it was then that my heart sank. Frank Wood's car was standing before the door. End of chapter 1